Hello and welcome to Spotlight On. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. This week, the spotlight shines on Obi Fernandez and Record Shop, a curated digital collectibles platform built on the Flow blockchain. Record Shop's collectible pack drops contain music, mixtapes, video clips, static visuals, and other multimedia types from the top artists and brands in the electronic music space. If you think you know the music NFT space or have a perspective pro or con, this conversation might upend some of your assumptions. In a good way, I hope. Enjoy. Welcome and thank you for making time. Welcome and thank you. I wonder if you could start off by giving our listeners a little bit of the background on the Record Shop project, what it is overall. Talk a little bit about the role that sound plays in it and if by doing that, maybe also address sort of the, the unique problem statement that you're going after in these initiatives. Yeah, happy to do so. And, and thanks again for the, for the invite to the show. I'm happy to be here. The Record Shop project is generally described as a music NFT platform, although I cringe every time I hear that or have to say that for various reasons that we'll get into later. I have a, I have a long history in technology. I am a published author who wrote the Bible of a technology called Ruby on Rails, which is used for, for building large-scale web platforms like Record Shop. It's the technology Twitter was built on originally, most famously. I also happen to have a long history in music, uh, having been a party and club DJ when I, when I was very young. had some other DJs in my family, which is kind of how I got into it. And started collecting records, talking about over 30 years ago at this point. And started bedroom producing in 2001. And in 2017, I kind of semi-retired from technology and started trying to make a go at it as a professional DJ again. And actually releasing music this time. So I, I got some help and some tutoring and just started putting out music on some somewhat reputable electronic music labels. So it was doing pretty well actually scored some big gigs and then the pandemic put a halt to everything. So in um, early 2021 last year, I was looking at the success of NFTs that, that was starting to bubble up. And I had been aware of NFT technology for a while and figured that I might as well take a shot at, at merging my two passions together, mm -hmm. <laughs> technology and music. So that that's kind of how I personally came about to starting this thing. And, and the objective from the beginning has been to create a viable alternative to the current business model for working musicians. Spotify recently called people like me as professionally aspiring musicians. And I think they said that there's like 200,000 of us on Spotify's platform as far as they can tell, which means there must be hundreds of thousands of just hobbyists or, or other things uploading those famous 60,000 tracks a day. But in any case, whatever the reason is, and it's arguable, if there is a true reason, music is very devalued. It's passive consumption habits. It's the fact that there's so much music. If we consider music an economy, it's pretty obviously a supply and demand issue, or it's just a vast oversupply in the market, let's say. But as someone who has recently, fairly recently, gone through the experience of trying to 
start a career in music, it was very painfully obvious to me that the economic incentives or motivations were far-fetched for someone starting out, especially given that I, I have no hopes of being a pop star, let's say. And that's, that's general, one of the generally accepted ways that you have any shot at all at making, let's say, millions of dollars on the music itself, right? Right. Record Shop was born in the heyday of Clubhouse, which is an online chat system, kind of like Twitter Spaces is now. And at the time, I was in a chat about uh, the future of music and the artist BT was in there. And, and BT is kind of famous on a few different dimensions. Uh, he, he's one of the originators of modern trance music. He's also a very gifted composer and then has done a lot of soundtrack work and things like that. Uh, and he's, he's one of my heroes. And I heard him on a clubhouse chat talking about his music as a loss leader for other activities that he did. And that broke my heart. I really love BT's music, you know, from, from his oldest stuff, Flaming June, et cetera, to his newest albums. Call me a romanticist, as, as uh, the founder of Beatport called me in the clubhouse chat, an old man shaking his fist at the sky. But I, I really want music to still have value. The music itself, right? As, as a DJ, I used to go to satellite records, and, and I'm talking about being like 17 years old at the time, maybe 18. I'd take the 165 New Jersey Express bus into Manhattan. I'd have $40, $50 in my pocket, hard-earned money. And I'd go home with barely enough money, but with just one record, right? Barely enough money to get the bus fare home. But usually with just one, maybe two imports that I paid $20, $30, $40 for, as opposed to buying $5 import open singles. Why? Why Why did I do that? And the, the reason that has stuck with me throughout all these years and I miss about DJing back in those times was it, it was about scarcity. It was about getting the stuff that your friends didn't have, dropping the track that completely took everyone in the party by surprise and had them scrambling to go look at your crate to see what it was. And that's been lost. I look at it and I go, can we, can we use NFT technology? Can we use blockchain technology to restore some of that? And the, the reason that I, that I think it's possible is that what we've seen in consumers, and, and mind you, we're still very, very early on in the process, still super, super early in the adoption cycle for this. But what we've already seen is that consumers treat NFT-backed digital items as tangible items, almost like they were a piece of vinyl or a CD or some other form of collector's item, a poster, a t-shirt, et cetera. We saw that a year ago. It was already kind of becoming apparent. It was already part of the dialogue. So I said, okay, can we create a platform? And if we were creating a platform from scratch, what would we do? And one of the things I wanted to do differently, because I had already been involved in a music crypto project before called Tune, was instead of going for the DIYers and, and the, the beginner musicians and independents and stuff like that, I leveraged my network and that of, of my co-founders to go after well-known talent with big fan bases. There were multiple reasons for that approach. One, I wanted to bring credibility to the field, which even then was obvious that it was going to be a very big weak point. And, and today the situation is even worse. The NFT and, and crypto worlds are full of scams and reasons for consumers to not trust this space. But even a year ago, it seemed apparent that that, that was going to be an issue. So I wanted to bring big name artists and not only bring their fan bases, but also bring some credibility to the space. And 
I wanted to target mainstream music fans and create something of value for them. Because it was obvious even then, so during the process of starting up Record Shop, Blau dropped his famous NFT, which kind of kicked off the music NFT revolution in many people's minds, right? So millions of dollars for his album. And I said, that's cool. But even now, if you look at the purchasers of music NFTs, it's mostly crypto speculators. And even the ones that aren't, let's say, rank speculators, <laughs> the ones that are, you could, you could say are legitimately music fans, happen to also have vast amounts of crypto. Yeah, it's and, like a speculator class almost. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the, the reason we can safely say that is because they're not perturbed by uh, the gas fees on Ethereum. And I'm talking about specifically platforms like SoundXYZ, where they do these limited edition drops, 25 copies at a time, maybe even 100. And the mass of people try to buy them. I know I was one of the suckers that tried to do it in the beginning. I'm not throwing shade at them. I'm just saying I'm not, I'm not personally a crypto whale. So when I tried to buy one of their drops, I lost $80 in gas fees and I didn't get anything for it. And that hurt. I didn't, I didn't want to lose those $80, but a lot, you know, in, in the, in crypto circles, that's not a big deal amongst the class of investors that don't mind just aping into those projects as they say. But, but to me that while that's interesting on a certain level, it's not interesting from a scalability perspective and a relevance perspective. So if you're in the music industry and you're running some sort of traditional business, whatever it could be, you know, record label, et cetera. The fact that some crypto speculators are spending money on these things, which are essentially novelty items at this point. So what? Who cares? It, it's hard to draw a line to where that becomes interesting to a mainstream music fan that is your audience. Is the analogy, just let me interrupt for one second, is the analogy of what you're going after then similar in, in the mainstreaming aspect, similar to sort of the NBA top shop model where... I can just go in as a consumer and pull out my credit card and buy one of these things as opposed to having to understand linking wallets and blah, blah, blah. 100%. 100%. That's why Record Shop is built on Flow Blockchain. That's why Dapper Labs is a huge investor. Dapper Labs and their network of investors, including Roham, their CEO, are huge investors in Record Shop and have supported us since day one. If you come onto Record Shop, 90 to 95% of, of our buyers use credit cards and don't think twice about a crypto or a wallet. In fact, we look at their behavior and they don't even think twice about the fact that it's an NFT. <laughs> because even though there's links to be able to look at the NFT, the transaction or the NFT record itself on the Flow blockchain, no one clicks on it. It's kind of an afterthought. It seems sufficient for those kinds of buyers, like the ones we have on Record Shop, to understand in theory that the the digital collectible that they're getting is certifiably a limited edition good. And that, that makes it tangible. It's like, bing, magic. And the reason that that's significant is, for, is the same reason that, that vinyl sales and other kinds of collectibles are significant. And you go, well, wait a minute, that's a weird statement because even though vinyl sales are, are surging, it's still a niche, right? But yeah, it's a niche, but the fundamental reason that, that people do things like collect vinyl sometimes and not even having turntables to play them on is because they're buying it as a token of fandom. You know, they're using it as a way to express themselves as a consumer, to show their fan affiliation or, you know, following to their friends when they show off their collections, things like that. 
they get some degree of satisfaction out of them, but it's, it's still a physical item. And the generations that are coming, and this doesn't necessarily make sense to our generations, the older generations, but the generations that are coming, I know this because I have three children, don't care as much about the physical items as they care about the, the digital items because they live their entire lives online. What I think of as I'm, as I'm designing Record Shop and as we're pursuing our goals with Record Shop is, okay, how can we, how can we replicate part of the experience of, of building a vinyl or CD collection 20 or 30 years ago? Not now, right? Now it's a niche thing. But 20, 30 years ago, you walked into any music lover's living room and there were CDs and albums prominently displayed. It was a topic of conversation. It was what you looked at with your friends. You know, there was the whole ritual of deciding what went into the carousel for a dinner party. I see you nodding. So yeah. It, you, I'm you thinking know. back to my fondly about my Sony five, five disc yeah, carousel, which yeah, exactly. I haven't thought about in probably 15 years. <laughs> it was a thing, right? And, <laughs> and here, here's kind of, here's kind of what I get, what I'm getting at and why this matters to, to the music industry. We are mired right now in a situation where the vast majority of music consumers are consuming music in a passive way. And it's a debacle. It's been great for certain players, right? For Google, for Apple, for Daniel Atkins and Spotify, but it's been an absolute freaking disaster for practically everyone else. Because while streaming platforms work great for discovery, kind of, the habits that they reinforce is that music is worthless because you're not paying for it. And two, music can and should be can just consumed in, in a passive manner where you don't even know what you're listening to. Yeah, devoid of all context. Yeah. You put on a, a dinner playlist, you put on a workout playlist. Music is something you do while you're doing something else as opposed to being a primary activity. It's very, very few people uh, left in the world that actively consume music, sit down in a dark room or just... You know, you could say teenagers still do it. I know my 14-year-old still does it. He's deep in his Radiohead phase. At least it's not his My Chemical Romance phase anymore. <laughs> but, but that active consumption of music is something that's kind of gone by the wayside. And, and the nice thing you get as a side effect and is potentially the whole point for any of us to get excited about NFTs is that there's just something about the ownership and the tangibility that you get by knowing that you own that limited edition thing, whatever that thing might be, that digital thing that you own feels real in a way that an MP3 file never did. The fact that you can own it, you can sell it, you can do stuff with it, kind of like if it was a, a physical item, has a tremendous psychological impact in how you think about it. That's a really interesting thread to pull on for a second, which is there never was the sense that even having a hard drive full of digital music really implied ownership in any meaningful way. I might be able to duplicate the hard drive and give it to you and say, hey, here's my entire jazz collection. Enjoy. But it, it was almost like the $80 hard drive is what had the value. And, and actually riffing on that, think about how many of us have lost hard drives. Oh, sure with music collections, and then basically shrugged, oh, well. I mean, it might hurt a little bit. I, that's happened to me, unfortunately, many times over these years. But uh, <laughs> the last time I can remember that it hurt really badly was probably in 2000, 2005, 2006 era. 
I have a hard drive I'm afraid to plug in in my closet over there that's full of, it's full of just massive amounts of 7, 10, and 12-inch vinyl scans of just deep dish reggae that a friend of mine gave me 15, 20 years ago. And I'm, I, just, I, I just want to assume that hard drive still works. <laughs> I don't want to know. If it I totally know the feeling. <laughs> I absolutely know the feeling. I have old rips of some of my record collection that I, that I've sold off over the years, and I'm not even sure exactly where it is right now. I th- I think I backed it up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the the NFT or the the digital collectible or however you, whatever the preferred nomenclature is that has a different of aesthetic value because it's limited because it's multimedia because I can actually. I can choose, like, you You can't just go get it. It's not commoditized. Is that, like, help me understand the difference between the MP3 and the collectible. Fundamentally, that's what non-fungible means, right? It's not, it's not replaceable. Yeah. And especially when you start going down that rabbit hole, you start caring about things like serial numbers and, and whatnot, and people pay a premium for low serial numbers. And then on Record Shop, there's ways that we, you can modify your digital collectible. At some point later this year, we're going to introduce autographing at events and things like that. It is an illusion of sports because it's still a digital item. And then people love to make fun of NFTs going, well, I can just right-click and save that JPEG. But it's missing the point, right? You can also just copy your friend's CD. You know, if you go back long enough, I mean, why did I not let my friends record those import vinyls that I bought because I didn't want them to have it because they were mine. And you, you, you hit the nail on the head. The MP3s that you, you pirated or, or bought or whatever never really felt your, like they were yours. They were kind of, at best they were, they were yours, but they were just kind of anonymous fungible things that you could just get another copy of. Right. Yeah. And the platforms did their best. Apple in particular is terrible at this. At just enforcing whatever whims they have on <laughs> Over your collection, I know. I know. I remember they had all that whole up. You could upload your music and then access it anywhere and stuff like that. And they just messed with the rights around that so many times that eventually gave up trying to follow it. I know that seemed like such a, a Nirvana solution if it had worked and had. It never felt stable. It never, never. No, it never felt stable. And it just it, what it does is it undermines your your ability to think of those as goods that you actually own. Right. It comes up sometimes in other domains like for instance whether you own the books on your kindle or not especially if amazon has the ability to take away those rights for something that you quote unquote bought you know and the trend for a long time has been towards licensing content rather than buying it yeah but but nfts upends that you know an nft at least in its current incarnation is buying it's not licensing it's buying and as the operator of a platform that works with this i i have real world consequences to that like not not too long ago i was having a conversation with lawyers about wording on our contracts which said that uh you know in the event of of the contract lapsing we we would remove the content from our site and i said well our partners do understand that we cannot remove <laughs> nfts that have been bought correct you know and we're like we went through a whole discussion about the implications of that and uh, and it was fine, but we were reusing language from old school contracts, which we had to elaborate on to make sure that it was understood. That's touching into another topic I'd love to get your perspective on, which is you talked earlier about scalability. We, we didn't explore that too deeply, but let's assume for a minute, you know, like, let me just play the role of 
I'm I'm a merchandiser in the music space and I've I represent one of the artists you work with and I'm used to seeing that artist play a festival or go out on the road and when I think about scalability I'm thinking about I'm going to print 10,000 t-shirts for the next x number of months while the artist is on the road and if I blow through all those I've done scale. So now you come to me or you come to the artist and you say we're going to create this other kind of collectible. And when you say scalability to the artist, are you talking about the capabilities of the technology platform? Are you talking about the scale of their revenue opportunity? As somebody who's used to working in that one paradigm, how do I, how do I bridge my thinking to, well, but you're only going to let me sell 25. That's not that interesting. I want to sell 25,000. I get where you're going with that. A couple of different ways to bridge that topic. One of them is, I mean, the, the artist, you could still do 25,000 NFTs. You could potentially tie them to your ticket sales if your ticket provider gives you the ability to do something like that, or you could airdrop them. You might not have to make 25,000 t-shirts. You might only have to make 2,500 and still get a similar amount of revenue, which is interesting from a efficiency standpoint, because we haven't done this on a large scale record shop, but we have evidence to show that a lot of our buyers don't actually care about the physical thing mm-hmm. because they, we've given them NFTs that are redeemable for physical stuff and they don't redeem it. They'd rather keep it in a digital form. And I've seen a little bit of evidence of that aversion to physical stuff from just in general with the kind of uh, interest we get when we float ideas amongst the community. So there's another angle on that question, which, which is interesting, kind of goes into the Web3 philosophies and things like that is if, if you're an artist that can sell 25,000 t-shirts on a tour, NFTs are probably not that interesting to you right now. It, it's the people who are at a, a little bit lower scale where it's interesting to see who, who your real super fans are. And because of the emphasis on engagement and the, the way that fans feel empowered to, to have a say and have ownership in what the design of that t-shirt is going to be, let's say, just to give you a for instance, that's where the power of this kind of platform shines through. Because along with the tangibility aspect, and this is something that I find completely novel, at least the fans that we're seeing get involved at this early stage, like they're activists, right? Like they, they want to be involved. They want to be part of the, the team. They want to promote. Some of it is self-serving in the sense that they, they may feel that they've made a big investment in the, in the NFTs of this artist and they want to increase the resale value. And if, you, if you've read some of my blogs on the topic, you know that I go through a lot of words to explain my, my complex feelings about extrinsic versus intrinsic motivations in the field. It, and and it, it troubles me the, because the speculative aspect or aka gambling aspect of the behavior we see here I don't find to be that compatible with what I would term legitimate fandom, right? So if you're jumping on an artist bandwagon because you expect to make profit off the stuff that you bought low and you want to sell high, do I really want you as a fan? I mean, I, I guess maybe I do, you know, to the extent that our incentives are aligned, but that's very different. That's why I say it's completely novel. We're used to label reps and other business industry types aligning with us in that way, but we're not used to our fans aligning in that way we'll be back with more of my discussion with obi fernandez from record shop after this break and now back to my discussion with obi fernandez 
Yeah, you, it's interesting because you, you take a bit of a different position on that topic than I expected and that I, I'm used to hearing from what I'll, I'll refer to, and I'll apologize for referring to it this way, sort of Web3 evangelists, if you will, mm-hmm. or just Web3 advocates, thought leaders. You're much more sort of activist in that sense that a lot of, a lot of the point of view I hear is people want to encourage that notion in their fandom that like, come speculate with me or come invest in me or come enjoy the ride or come. There, there seems to be much more or, or quite a bit of rallying around this idea of let's all do well together. And there's something quite honestly, I mean, at the risk of being pandering, I find a bit sort of refreshing in your point of view, which is let's not start with this idea that we're all in this to get rich. Like, <laughs> let's, let's have a fun fan community and see where it goes and what we can build. <laughs> and, and, and I feel like that's been missing in a lot of the conversation, specifically around music in this space. There's been, a, I feel, a bit too much of a rush to say, let's make everybody an investor. Let's make all of our fans now our business partners. Well, it's a reason it's called degeneracy, right? Degens. I, I find certain aspects of, of that whole scene and the, the whole crypto bro culture to be degenerate because the people who are engaging in a lot of these projects, they know, they know that the average person that gets involved in their project is not going to make money at it. Yeah. Only the early people in have a shot at making money and... I've seen what happens when you intersect that sort of thing with casual music fans and it, it ain't pretty. The casual fan comes in and, and makes emotional decisions on what's essentially a pretty uh, cutthroat trading environment. There's savvy actors that, that are in there day in, day out, and they know how to manipulate and they know how to, how to make money and it's a zero-sum game. <laughs> yeah, well... Without, without sort of devolving the conversation into the sort of all the sharks in the waters, could you, could you take me through either a hypothetical or a real world sort of case study, if you will, or, or what, like, what's the ideal implementation? What's, what's sort of, what's your sort of dream right now of how you'd like to see an artist use the platform or maybe something you've done recently that you say, you know what, this is representing the vision. Well, you, you, you originally asked me about sound token and, and maybe this is a good opportunity to kind of talk about what we're designing. You, you said uh, the way that I talk about it, things is a little refreshing and I appreciate that. It's a lonely hill that I'm kind of over on at, at the moment because we stand a little bit apart from, from the rest of the crypto world and wanting or rather not caring too much about whether crypto people care about record shop or not because we're we're trying to build an economy that scales for artists and mainstream music fans. And when I say mainstream, I don't mean pop music. I mean, just, just music in general going forward. The reason I bring it back to sound token, and I'm going to try to keep this super simple because I know it gets, it gets a little complicated quick, but essentially it is too easy to upload music. Like we're not believers in free minting on, on OpenSea and things like that. Like we think there's a place for it. There's, there's definitely a place, a continued place for anyone to be able to upload music by a distro kit to the platforms or to start a new account on SoundCloud, upload stuff to it. But on Record Shop, we want to be open and at the same time curated. The difference is that the, the curation will happen by the players of Record Shop. They are essentially role-playing I don't even know if you could call it role playing, but you know, it's, it's almost playing 
the role of people that are currently in the music industry, which means they're essentially fulfilling some of that A&R and investor kind of role in the newcomers. So what we're planning to do, and the sound token is kind of like the, the foundational economic piece for being able to realize this vision, is if you sign up for Record Shop, we won't just blind you, let you upload and mint whatever NFTs you want. We'll say first go to the Discord, which is the chat program where there's thousands of Record Shop players and hundreds of active players at any given moment. Introduce yourself to them. Get them to buy one of you, you know, or at least accept one of your free NFTs right off the bat. So we'll like let you mint some free ones or something. And then there's a ladder of engagement where you have to get increasing levels of support before we let you go wide and subsidize you to actually create additional NFTs on the platform. So we're throwing up barriers to participation, which goes completely <laughs> against the grain for most everything else out there, especially Web2 platforms, where the idea has always been to minimize any barriers and let anyone create anything, right? But but I think the pendulum has to swing back because the, the reality that we're living through, and now I'm not just talking about music, I'm talking about everything in social media and what it's done to our society just kind of shows that if you let ex, you know platforms kind of ex- exploit those mechanisms, you don't get great results. Not everybody's a musician. Not everybody's a journalist. Not everybody is a photographer. <laughs> I'm, glad you, I'm glad you said it so I didn't have to. So maybe I am an old man shaking my fist at this guy, but as long as we got some money in to, to play with here, we're going after this approach, which is align incentives for quality over quantity. Mm-hmm. Align incentives for authentic engagement. And here's where we start to diverge. You know, some people go, well, Aren't you just doing fan clubs for the 21st century? I go, yeah, kind of. But, you know, that fan club I, I joined when I was 12, I'm sure the artist wasn't the one writing the letters back, you know. So I, I would term that not authentic, let's say. And you, you might say, but Obi, if this goes to scale, it's not going to be the artist chatting on the Discord. And I would go, yeah, but, but maybe it will. Because the rules have changed. The goalposts have moved. It's like what I was talking about before, the fans want that authentic engagement. And the difference is that now they're putting their money where their mouth is. So what we see is a positive feedback loop where the artists that do engage authentically, we see this every day on Record Shop, their stuff is worth the most. It's a direct correlation. And their digital need, like the artist... The artists live in these places authentically anyway. They may also be consumers of some of this stuff. There's a sweeping generalization, but I don't think it's a stretch to say a lot of the artists you work with would be in these communities, whether they were a startup artist or a busy, successful globetrotting artist. It might just be how they choose to spend some of their time. There's some truth to that, I would say, from from my perspective. And and also because of pandemic, a lot of artists in the electronic music world, DJs, et cetera, they picked up Twitch as a place where they could make money and have community. And you can't be inauthentic on Twitch because it's it's a live stream of you doing your thing, whatever that thing might be. Plus you're a method actor as well as a DJ. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and Twitch is not a one-way medium. Like if, you, if you're not familiar with the phenomenon, you might just think, oh, well, it's another way of just broadcasting the same as you would on YouTube. No, it's actually not. 
the people that, that successfully use Twitch are dialoguing with the community, giving them perks, reacting to what they say in the chat. And Twitch itself, some of the more advanced kind of implementations of things you can do on your channel on Twitch, the fans are putting stuff on the screen, right? Like their emojis are exploding on the screen and stuff. They're changing your background. They're requesting songs, you know. It's that intensive fan interaction. It's one of the reasons I think that record shop can work in the long term. We saw it kind of working as a microcosm where fans got really loyal to certain artists on Twitch, still are going religiously to to watch the shows that they do on a weekly or even daily basis, creating a group identity around those interactions a membership in that. And in many cases, devoting a serious amount of money to the cost by subscribing to those channels at different levels, right? And then getting recognition and you get a feedback loop going. What we're doing at a record shop is basically that at scale, without the video streaming portion because the video stream portion is a pain in the ass i can tell you from personal experience because at the beginning of pandemic uh, i couldn't do shows anymore i so i painted a wall green in my house and i set up my dj equipment and i started trying to do the twitch broadcasting thing and working up their ladder to become a partner and it's a grind frankly it was way too much for for my taste i'm not that extroverted i'm i wasn't up for it like I couldn't handle the thing. There is like, you, you're basically turning yourself into a, a radio DJ. You have to be able to, to do that thing. It's a special skill that not all of them have. So building record shop, it was like, how can we minimize the amount of other stuff that you have to do and put the focus on the music, on the quality of the music and the quality of the engagement you get around that music product? Let's say, and and that sort of manifested to go back where you where where you were a minute ago before I interrupted. That laddering portion of the of the ability to basically release products into the community. That's sort of the manifestation of of that concept. Yeah, that that's the manifestation, and and, and to bring it back to the sound token, and the, the reason that I think this will work is that we're incentivizing fans to stake in favor of their artists, and what I mean by stake is that. Whenever you buy something, you know, if I have this NFT collectible, and for those of you listening, I'm holding up a pamphlet with local restaurants uh, near my hotel, but it kind of looks like a card. So if I'm holding this card, it has a face value with coins on it on record shop. And that represents a certain amount of sound that I hold through that NFT. So I don't have to have a crypto wallet. I don't have to know anything about the difference between non-fungible and fungible tokens. I don't even have to know what sound token is. Literally, all I have to do is to press a button to say, I'm showcasing this because it's one of my favorite artists. And that qualifies you for a ranking of who the best fans are. Just to put it in very light language, right? Mm -hmm. So we're, we're ranking fandom and we're ranking patronage because as you express your fandom, we pay out rewards to the people that have the, the most intense fandom on the platform. That reward is paid in sound token and sound token is what is required to mint new NFTs on record shop. So success begets success. Success begets success, but it doesn't beget success from passive consumption. The way that Spotify and YouTube beget success by passive consumption, just the amount of streams. It's hard to be a one hit wonder then on the platform. 
So I could, I could write a Christmas song and get mailbox money the rest of my life through Spotify and YouTube. I could have a Christmas product on record shop and it would be a lot of fun. But if I don't, if I don't do something with the sound I've earned, what have I really accomplished? I've, you know, I've, I've maybe had a fun December and early January, but like, I'm not in the community. I'm not, not building anything. So now I take those sort of earnings and I do the next thing and I express myself again and I keep doing that. And if what I'm doing is resonating, I get the opportunity to do more of it. Right. You got to incentivize the thing that you want. And in the case of Record Shop, and as long as the current situation persists, I mean, right now, the, right now, the legacy platforms, I call them legacy platforms in, in an aspirational way, the dominant platforms uh, incentivize passive music consumption. So that's what you get. Record Shop and hopefully other platforms like us in the future, probably block, backed by blockchain, but it doesn't have to be should incentivize what artists actually want, which is active music consumption, active music fandom. Fans who know what they're listening to and support you, and in the best of cases, invest money in you. What I see happening in a microcosm is that as artists realize what we're doing, and they get it because it's such a foreign concept at the moment, but once the light bulb goes off, and, it, and, and man, I've been in so many Zoom calls where I can almost see the light bulb going off, they get it. It's, it's, it's fantastic. They, they become evangelists for the cause. They start wearing your t-shirt on their streams, uh, DJ gigs and stuff like that. They tell their friends. And that was before we started mailing revenue checks. <laughs> Third and fourth quarter, we, we mailed out over half a million dollar in, in, in revenue share from the sales on the platform. And all of a sudden, we're getting incoming, you know, inbound requests almost every day from new artists who have heard through the grapevine, hey, I should do my NFT thing here. I want to find out what it's about. Obviously, they're money motivated, many of them, but that's okay. Like, that's what we want. That's like our prime directive is to help them make more money. When they come in, what we want them to realize is that it's not just free money. It's not magical blockchain money. It's, it's a different way of making money that is hopefully more artistically rewarding and authentic than what they would otherwise have to do. First of all, that, 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 that's a great summation and it's a great aspiration. And it's really exciting to see that approach being taken. Like I said, or like I alluded to earlier, it was not what I expected when I, when I was first introduced to the company. And as I started to read the material and your writings, it, it was really a, a fresh perspective and one that I was really grateful to see because like a lot of people, observers, participants in the industry, still very burnt and sort of and, and cynical about and not even cynical. I, I realize there's a lot of cynicism going around, but just a, a little bit like stymie about like, how, you know, what, what is the right way to participate in this, in this ecosystem? Is it worth participating in? Like where does Ponzi end and, and, and real scalable business begin? And so I really appreciate the, the, the thinking and the, well, now the implementation in the marketplace. And we, we are expanding genres, by the way, because a lot, of, a lot of people look at us and then write us off because we're just electronic music. Electronic music was just the easiest place for, for us to start. Like I mentioned, I'm a longtime DJ and somewhat more recent producer in the electronic music arena. And so are many of the people on, on my team. So that's where it was easy for us to get adoption. But in the coming months, we're currently in the process of rolling out storefronts, which is a, a way of our content partners kind of doing the whole thing themselves because we've been doing much of the work for them. And now they're able to mint 
NFTs themselves and kind of create the designs and go directly to their fan base. And then the next step, which will be coming in the next few months, is that we start opening the door to people to sign up, like we discussed a little earlier, because it's been invite only until now. And then once that happens, I think you're going to see an explosion of different genres and, and musical styles on the platform. It'll become more representative of the whole music sphere. Is it fair to say that electronic music is where you started, not only because of your participation in that scene, but is there something about the artists and fans and the artist fan relationship in that genre that, that it, it seems that a lot of the, you know, is it that it's just a technology leaning crowd? Like, is there something else to it or is it just a matter of convenience? Well, certainly with the art, the artists are used to exploiting technology because it's a technological genre overall. Mm -hmm. uh, there were times that I seriously questioned the wisdom of going after that particular fan base, especially with some of our techno artists. So, so we, ironically, because we're a U.S.-based company, but you know, probably because where our roots are, a lot of our artists are European electronic music artists, and there's there's a gulf in the EDM world between the cultures that are more Eurocentric and the ones that are kind of, you know, EDC ultra that style of EDM in the U.S which is, you know, probably the dominant styles. And, and those are very different consumer bases, especially if you get into some of the techno crowds and stuff like that. They're like anti-capitalists. Anything touching NFTs is, is uh, anathema. So <laughs> uh, that, that's been a little bit of a weird divide to, to cross as well. But we're starting to move beyond those horizons. And actually, you know, something that's really interesting and refreshing that you, that you might find interesting or your listeners might find interesting we made a conscious choice to not put genre classifications and filters on Record Shop. I'm really hoping I can keep that up going for a while because good music is good music. And most of the people that I know who are serious music fans have that attitude. They're open-minded about listening to whatever it is as long as it's good. And that's part of the ethos of, of Record Shop. Like I said, we're actively aligning economic incentives for quality and that quality can come in any shape or form sonically, whether it's hardcore or jazz or hell noise or avant-garde, whatever, whatever the case may be, if there's authentic fandom for it and it's not just commercial crap, you know, to use a technical term, we, we want, we want it to be accessible and we want people to, to be able to browse it and, and check it out without being prejudiced. And I think that part of the challenges we have as a music industry nowadays is algorithmic playlists and like the way that Spotify is relentlessly defining genres and things. And a lot of these labels, you know, end up creating barriers to, to people being heard. Yeah, that's right. I'm predominantly a trance artist, which makes me particularly sensitive to genre labeling because, you know, you may not know this, but like there's Trance had its heyday in 99 and has been kind of down going downhill ever since as far as listener numbers. The different Beatport, which is the 800-pound gorilla as far as DJ downloads, the difference in magnitude between being labeled as a trance track and, for in, and a more popular genre like progressive house or techno can be like 10 or 100x in sales because you get discarded right off the bat. And a lot of those categorizations are completely subjective and often wrong. Just absolutely. And I, it's happened to me with records that I've put out that were not trance. 
and some curator somewhere or algorithm looked at everything else that I did, or maybe did a cursory listen and said trance and boom, that's it. Yeah. And that doesn't reflect the way artists create, right? Like no, may, maybe yeah, no. some, but not a lot. Like, and it's, I don't think it reflects the way people listen to music. It's one of the refreshing things that I've seen, even with artists on Record Shop already, which is that since th- this is a fresh new thing that they're doing, they feel like they can stretch the envelope, push the envelope yeah. as far as their sound. We, we saw with w- one of my favorite artists on Record Shop is Rich Silverstone, famous trance artist, and he put out a, under an alias called Gansfeld, and it's, it's just a weird track. He calls it weird. I think it's amazing as a Silverstone fan. And a lot of his fans after he put it out said, hey, this is good stuff. Can you put out more? But at the time that he put it out, he was worried about, he said, this is something I would not put out normally because I would be worried about alienating my fans. So it's just a little anecdote that shows you kind of the power of these new platforms to allow artists more creative freedom. Because it is really, really based more on the perception of the work itself as opposed to some narrative or preconceived notions about genre well listen our, our time together is is running down but i would love it if you're up to it i'd love to maybe check in in a few months and see how things are progressing and see how the community is embracing the the tools and the opportunity i love what you guys are up to and i really appreciate your time thanks man i i uh yeah i'd love to be back and i appreciate the support and to to listeners who who might be interested in checking us out we do have kind of a weird name it's a record <laughs> shop with no vowels but but if you if you have trouble remembering that you can just type record shop into google or even recordshop.com spelled out with the vowels and it'll still resolve to the right place you'll still you'll still find us we'll make sure to get all the proper links into the episode notes as well so uh, interested parties can get directly to you and check things out thanks again thank you so much obi fernandez and the record shop team Thank you for listening to Spotlight On, which is presented by Osiris Media and brought to you by Light. Executive producers are Lawrence Purrier, Ant Taylor, Brian Brinkman, RJB, and Matt Dwyer. Spotlight On is produced by Craig Snyder, with post-production by Michael Donaldson, and theme music by Q Burns Abstract Message. If you like what you've heard, please share us with a friend and leave a review on your podcast platform of choice. Visit us online at SpotlightOnPodcast.com or at SpotlightOnPod on Instagram and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Be safe and stay in touch. Stay in touch.